Today's read, A Moment of Silence, Midnight Three by Sister Soldier, Chapter 18. Friends, a reflection. We should autograph this wall, Amir said. Man, straighten up your block, Chris criticized him. We get paid to build the owner's wall. We almost done. Now you want to tag it up. Put your name on it? Damn, you could take the nigga out the hood, but can't take the hood out the nigga. Chris joked him. Me and him both laughed, but Amir didn't. First, this brother shows up in his eyes odd and Stan Smith kicks talking about tennis. I can forgive him. He lives in Brooklyn Heights. Then today, you've been talking about let's go take horseback riding lessons. How many New York cats you know riding around New York on a goddamn horse? Amir asked me. True, Chris jumped in. The cops, some of them ride horses, he added. It's a skill, was all I said in reply to Amir's complaints. Maybe, but what you gonna do with that skill? We ain't gonna be no cops, that's dead. So what else be riding horses for? Amir asked me. Maybe one day I'll buy a thousand acres of land and we can ride horses out there. On my land, I said casually. Fuck that. Me and you live in the Brooklyn Projects. We about balling. Hustlers League, you in or out? Amir asked me, flipping topics. I'm in, I told him laid back like it wasn't nothing to me. Word? Amir got excited. How'd you pull that off? I'm saying, shit just be going your way, nice and smooth. No other cat could walk off the court for more than a month and just show up at playoff time six weeks later. Except you. You don't want me to play? I asked him straight-faced. You scared? I taunted him. Can't take the heat? Man, we could leave this wall right now and run one. Amir challenged me. I've been on the courts daily, perfecting my game, lining my pockets, getting ready to take the league titles and eat up all the cash. <laughs> nah, I said, work first, play later, but I will run one with you. Why not? That's not how we do it, Chris chimed in. It's us against them us against them not us against us who's them amir asked it don't matter chris said if you hitting the courts every day we should be with you as long as we us them could be any fucking three guys long as we three stick together he silenced us with those words it felt real even amir had to flow with it and as far as the horseback riding lessons i'm down it's something new. It's different. How much does it cost? Chris asked me. I got you, I told him. I'm not going to charge you nothing for going along with my idea. Aw, oh, that's sweet. You two going riding in them funny pants? Amir asked. We riding denim, I told him. Something tells me the girlies would like that shit, Chris said. What? A nigger on a horse? Amir asked. A young, strong brother like myself on a horse. Amir, you better get up on it, Chris challenged him. If you paying, I'll show up, but I'll only take lessons from a fly-ass female. 
I can't see two dudes sitting on one horse, Amir said, and we laughed. And on Friday night, y'all come through. I'm DJing a party, my first gig. Where at, I asked him. In the east, of course. East New York Projects. In the center. No thanks. That's going to be a sausage party, Chris said. Nah, it's not, Amir said. We got some badass shorties in my building. Yeah, right. Y'all so crazy in the east. Everybody going to be strapped. Faces going to be tight. Scary niggas too cool to dance. Somebody going to do something extra stupid. And the girls already know y'all. So they ain't going to show up in the first place. Chris sounded sure. Everybody in the building know it's my party. I'm on the turntables. My pop's going to be there holding it down for me. The old heads will show him respect. And I put together a little crew. The young ones will definitely show me respect. I'm pulling 350 in one night. One three-hour gig from 10 to 1 a.m. That's half of what I earn here building the wall. And we've been at it for almost two weeks. 350 for one night? That's good money, Chris admitted. But not if it's the last night of your life. Come on, man. Don't jinx it, Amir said to Chris. Why are you so quiet? Amir turned to me. Ain't nothing to talk about. If it's your thing, I'm going to rock with it, I said. Heard that, Chris? That's what you should be saying. He was just talking all that yin-yang about unity and how we three got to stick together, Amir chided him. Only way I could come is if I lie to my father, I'm telling you. I won't even get the whole sentence out before Reverend Broadman shuts me down. Remember the last party we went to? I ended up in jail. Y'all ended up in church checking to see if I was dead. Me in jail and y'all in church. Everything that could have gone wrong went wrong that night. Chris made his point with intensity in his voice. I agreed with him. It didn't matter though. If Amir was going to do it, I had to have his back. I remembered, of course, that he had already flashed my nine on some of them boys in the East. That was enough for me to know I needed to show up. Give him a pass, I said to Amir. Chris could sit this one out so he don't have to lie to his father. I can understand that. Alright, cool. We give Chris a pass on the party. Y'all give me a pass on the horses, Amir bargained. That'll work me and Chris both said at the same time. And there gonna be some girls there. It's a sweet 16 party for a girl from my building. She gave out invitations and the whole shit. Amir wanted to get the last one in on Chris. It's the globe trotter. Amir's father greeted me. We need to set up a separate thing just for me to hear about your trip. He wanted to know about Asia. He ain't gonna tell you. Don't take it personal, Pops. Me and Chris see him every day and he still ain't tell us shit. It's the silent man who has the best stories to tell. Give him time. It'll flow out naturally when you least expect it. I'm sure it'll be I'm sure it will be worth the wait. His father made me feel relieved. And I see you got skills with the clippers. Thanks for using them, he said, about the clippers he gifted me before I left for Japan. I cut a few potholes in my head before I got it right, I said joking. Back in Amir's room, chilling while he's getting ready. Fill me in, I told him. 
About what? About this party. I'ma lay low. Still, I wanna know if you got beef. Who you got beef with? And what the fuck is a sweet 16 party anyway? I asked. It's something that girls get all hyped about. It's like, they young, but they really are women at 16. So, on their 16th birthday, they like to flash out, he said. Flash out? Yeah, you know, like, dress up. Be the center of attention and get gifts. It's like they could be bullshit the day before and bullshit the day after. But for that one night, their 16th birthday, they in the spotlight center stage and shit. So, how did you get involved? I asked him. You asking if I'm fucking her. And if that's the reason her mother hired me. You think I couldn't get my own business started up on the strength of my skills? I was practicing every day for two months on a low. I got up a nice vinyl collection. One third from my mom, another from my pops, and the last third from Mitzi. Mitzi? I had not heard him call her name even once before. She's the one turning 16. She got certain records she requested me to play for her birthday. I didn't have them. She gave me hers. Then he admitted, well, yeah, I fucked her. Not really, though. I was supposed to, but something happened. Why does it matter anyway? I got the gig. Money is money, right? I'm asking for one simple reason. Is there some nigga who's gonna be at this party gunning for you cause you fucked his girl? You gonna be cutting and scratching and mixing records, watching the turntables, taking requests. I'll be on the lookout, holding you down, I said, and I meant it. He smiled. Good looking out. But this is my building. I got this. Where's the mother? He said confidently. He sounded sincere. A lot of dudes do want to get at Mitzi, though. She a little sweet on me. I didn't even know until one day she invited me to check her, but asked me to come through at one in the morning when her moms and them would be asleep. So I'm like, hell yeah, I know what she want to do. I'm with it. So I comes through at 1 a.m. She opened the door and it was all dark and quiet. She had one finger over her lips like for me not to make no noise. Then she locked her fingers around mine so I could follow her. I never had been in her crib before. I couldn't see shit. I stepped on a toy that one of them little motherfuckers in her house slept on the floor. The thing started screeching and lighting up. She pulled me into a room. It was dark in there too and it was two beds. Somebody was asleep in the other bed. So she was like, shh, whispering in my ear and shit to be quiet. But then... She starts doing all this sexy shit to me with her tongue. She taking off my buckle, pulls me under her covers. She warm like water balloons. My hands is everywhere. I felt the nappy and she was ready. Now, I'm in my pockets trying to pull out the condom and shit. She jumps on top of me, but we're still beneath the blankets. She starts crawling backwards over me. Next thing I know... She giving me dome. I mean, like the juiciest, thickest lips ever. Shit felt so good, she had me sounding like a bitch. I was making so much noise, she put a hand over my mouth. I ain't give a fuck, long as she didn't stop. This girl fucked with me all night. 
Her nah was crazy, Amir said, seeming like he was trapped, and dead set on going back for a few more rounds with her. I thought you said you didn't fuck her, I reminded him. I didn't fuck Mitzi. It was her sister who answered the door. I didn't say shit after he said that. In my mind, I had to regroup. Couldn't believe the backwards shit that happens right in front of me each time I come to East New York or the crazy shit he's telling me that happened before I got there. The freaky sister named Mimi wore me out. I fell asleep in her bed and shit in the roar like it was her own apartment, not her mama's house. The one who invited me was standing over the bed early that morning. She looked mad, but I wasn't fully woke. So I'm trying to see her, you know, look at her and figure out who she is and where I was. Then I remembered it was Mitzi. I wondered what she was doing standing out there in the cold when I had a warm body laying right next to me. I turned and looked and realized it was Mimi. I was like, oh shit, my bad. Mitzi took off her slipper and started hitting me with it, he said, ducking down like it was happening right then. She cried later on that night when she saw me outside. Soon as she felt her own tears, she got mad at herself for crying and flipped it all into a mean act. Said she was going to let me pop her cherry, but that I had fucked up. I apologized for making her feel bad, but man, her sister was good. So like I said, the one who's turning 16... Mitzi, whose party I'm doing, I didn't fuck her. Amir's giving me a serious look now, like there was anything right or good about the shit he just said. What about her father, I asked. You wasn't worried about him when you went creeping in her place at one in the morning? Don't waste your time asking about people's father. She ain't got one. It's her her mom's Minerva, Mitzi and her three sisters, Mimi, Mina, and Misha. Five girls. Her mom's looks like one of the daughters, though. Definitely not a mother. So a nigga could easily get confused or tempted or say, fuck it, I'll been either one of you. He paused as though he was asking if I understood what he was meaning. So what made Mitzi ask you to do her party after you did all that I asked come on man you know she still wanted I'm not sure if she still truly likes me like that but I am sure that she just wants me to want her more than she wants me and she wants me to choose her over her mom and her three sisters so she could feel good about it so she could feel she's better than them you know girls compete like that even if they blood-related. He said it like it was all strategy and game to him. No emotion, no love. Last round of questions, I said. Does Mitzi have a man who wants to fight you? Nah, it's not like that. I told you. She's a 16-year-old virgin. Or at least she was a 15-year-old virgin two months ago when she invited me up. So cats in the building got a wager going on. Who gonna get her cherry? Because she be playing high post and hard to get. Even though Mimi, Mina, and Misha, and her moms is all slutted out. He said...
You two, get the crate, stay in the back. You take one case, you take the other. You need to eat some food. Look like you can't carry nothing. Just grab my mixer, the headphones, and the wires. If you five little motherfuckers get robbed on the way to the center, you know what's up. You gonna be broke and get fucked up, and you'll still owe me. You'll be my slaves for the whole summer. Amir threatened as he gave out the orders to his five-man crew of 11 and 12-year-olds. If I was listening without watching, I could have easily thought he was a sergeant in the army, but they were just a crew of boys who I'm sure had no other way to work themselves inside of the teen party without doing Amir's bidding. DJ Red Romeo on the wheels of steel was warming up the crowd. I don't know where Amir pulled that name from. I figured it was because he was playing on the red team in the Hustlers Junior League and because a lot of girls sweat him. He dubbed himself Romeo. The cuts he selected was his way of introducing himself. That's the way it sounded to me. He led off with looking for the perfect beat by Africa Bambata. Only let it play for seven seconds, then cut to the hook something like a phenomenon from Grandmaster Flash's joint titled White Lines. Then he killed it with the 20th Century Steel Band's joint titled Heaven and Hell is on Earth. He turned up the intensity in the community center dance hall with throwbacks like Planet Rock by Africa Bambata and then The Body Rock by Treacherous Three and then rocking it by the Fearless Four. I was watching the room fill up with dudes just like Chris predicted. All 50 of them was watching Amir mixing and all too cool to dance. Four or five cats pulled up too close to the side of the DJ table. Me and Amir's father stood up to let them know to move the fuck back. Meanwhile, on the sidelines, there were MCs trying to get the mic. Amir saw, just smiled and flagged his father over. When he came back, he told me he wants to charge $10 for every man who wants to rock the mic. I told his father I didn't think it was a good idea security-wise. His father said, yeah, I told him that, but he said I could keep five off each head. I moved out of the way so his father could manage the money. Soon as they saw the first MC pay $10, half of them fell back. Now the first MC was freestyling, and the all-male crowd hung on the way he maneuvered his words. It was kind of dope the way the crowd was judging him on what he was saying and how he was saying it instead of what gear and jewels he was rocking. Thick beats in the cut titled Apache yanked one cool guy out of his spot and he began breakdancing in the center of the floor. He was the first dancer. Less than a second after him, another breakdancer stepped out and now this girl's sweet 16 party was underway with only males. Mitzi wasn't even here. A couple of cats was moonwalking. The sausage party was underway. The MCs who thought freestyling is supposed to be free and who didn't want to pay up the $10 looked like they was plotting something. The other tens of cats who were too cool to dance started getting restless and looking around like, where the fuck the girls at? Some of them started pacing around. My eyes were on them. 
Amir peeped the vibe and answered them by throwing on My 9mm Goes Bang by KRS-One. The party tone and mood flipped to rowdy. I got my nine. I'm sure I'm not the only one, I thought. This was a Brooklyn party. Again, Amir maneuvered the mood when it grew too hostile and threw on Lottie Dottie by Dougie Fresh and Slick Rick to throw it back into a playful mood. It worked. Women are always late, Amir's pop said calmly. They somewhere getting ready for us, I heard him. But I was watching these dudes. Two front doors flew open and a gang of girls bum-rushed in. There were more girls than could fit through the doors at one time, and the line buckled behind them, leading all the way outside. One girl had the crown on her head. It must be her party, I said to myself. Soon as Amir clocked her, he threw on Ring the Alarm by Tenor Saw and faded into Nuff Respect by Lady G. She started dancing in her pale blue chiffon mini and heels. Her body rock was mild and conservative as she wound to the Jamaican rhythm. I saw it was all for Amir, but he was looking down at the turntables, watching his own fingers moving the switches on his mixer. A next girl stepped in front of her in a black chiffon dress, looking like she was wearing the same style. Nah, the exact same dress as the birthday girl, but the color was black. She started dancing a fuck-me-slow wiggle like a caterpillar movement. Then all the girls beside and behind her began to dance too. The males closed in around them. Some girls had three males pushing up on them in the dance at the same time. Other girls had two. Everybody had somebody, and the Caribbean rhythms changed. What had been an explosive, mood-swinging, all-hip-hop party into a young sexual grind out. The sweet 16er clawed her way out of the grinding mob and made a beeline towards the DJ table. She snatched the mic from the short stand on the table. She started saying something, but before she could get two syllables out her mouth, Amir moved a switch that deaded the volume on the mic she was holding. She turned around and shot him a mean look. She came around to the back of the table, brushing by me and his father. She was close up on him, them exchanging words, lips separated by only a few inches, her body language saying to him, this is my birthday party. She must have gotten her way and wanted to emphasize it. The whole sexual feeling got washed away like someone threw a bucket of cold water and now Janet Jackson's What Have You Done For Me Lately was spinning uninterrupted by looping or scratching. She grabbed the mic and gripped it like she had rocked it before. Amir eased up the volume. Happy birthday to me, she said calmly smiling. If I know you, you can stay. If I don't know you, you can step. If you didn't bring me a gift, you can get the fuck out because I know everybody I invited brought me something. Is that right? She asked without yelling but with a thick, feminine Brooklyn girl attitude. Then she began to laugh. (laughs) No, psych. We all came out here to celebrate me and to have fun, right? So, we gonna get up a game of musical chairs, and the first prize winner for the girls gets a date with the first prize winner for the fellas. And we have a coupon for two for Red Lobster for him and her. I, 
Let's have some fun. This ain't no party for the deadheads and wallflowers. This is my night to remember. I didn't know the game musical chairs, but I watched as they helped each other set up a line of 13 chairs, every other one facing in the opposite direction. The girls in their mini dresses and some in their skirts and some in just jeans began walking around the chairs as all the males watched. Each one of them put on her own version of a strut. Amir was spinning, Girls Just Want to Have Fun by Cindy Lauper, as all the males watched. Suddenly, he switched the music off, and each of the 14 girls tried to sit in an empty chair before any other girl could get in it. But there were only 13 chairs, so one girl was left standing as the others laughed at her. You're out, one of them told her, but she already knew and walked away into the crowd. By the time there were only nine chairs remaining and ten girls, I was caught up in watching the game like all of the guys in the room. It was kind of funny. It sucked a lot of the hate and suspicion and fronting out of the air and out of the room. Word Up by Cameo was playing now, and there were only four girls left. They were serious about these musical chairs, and each kept darting their eyes towards Amir because he was controlling the music. Therefore, he was controlling the game. He wasn't watching them, though. He would just cut the music when he wanted to, sometimes immediately, and sometimes he'd let the jam play all the way out towards the end. When the music stopped suddenly, two girls tried to sit in one chair. They were side to side in the seat. Hard to tell who was the loser, but then they both saw there was one open chair at the same time the fourth girl standing saw it. They all three dashed for the open chair. One of them lifted it up, and the other two dashed back to the open chair they had both abandoned, and one of them got there first. The odd girl out, stamped her foot hard, and caught a tantrum. Move, bitch, one of the seated girls said, and then the crowd of girls who weren't playing in the game started chanting, Move, bitch, move, bitch, move, bitch, until she left. Now there were two chairs remaining and three girls. Amir threw on Bass Game by Groove B. Chill, featuring Finesse and Sinquist. The crowd jerked, appreciating the return to hip-hop after a string of R&B joints. Each of the three girls were revolving around the two chairs, doing something they weren't doing before, touching the top of the chair the whole way around. When the music stopped, Shorty, the black caterpillar, in the black chiffon dress was on the wrong side of the chair, but she had her hand on it and flipped it around and jumped in it. Uh-uh, uh-uh, that's cheating, the girl still standing said. Move, bitch, the crowd chanted until she went away. One chair and two girls, both with crazy bodies and short mini dresses, bare legs and heels. The black caterpillar kicked off her heels, which amped up the crowd and had the men calling out. The one in the yellow chiffon mini kept her high heels on and walked around like she was on the runway in Milan. Amir threw on salt and pepper's push it, and the whole crowd got hyped. The two competing girls started dancing around the chairs, and everybody cheered for their moves. Amir cut the music almost immediately, 
the one in the yellow was directly in front of the seat. She jumped on the chair, standing up and claiming victory. The black caterpillar pulled the chair out from under the yellow-dressed girl. The girl lost her balance and crashed to the floor, twisting her right ankle in her heels. The black caterpillar sat in the chair, crossing her legs, and her little dress crept up her thighs. You're supposed to sit, not stand, she told the yellow dress. The crowd started saying, move, bitch, repeatedly to the yellow dress girl as soon as she pulled herself up from the floor. The birthday girl in the pale blue chiffon mini jumped back on the mic. Who you calling bitch? She had been watching the whole competition quietly, but now she was yelling at the people who came to her party. That's my mother. Y'all better get civilized and show her some respect on my birthday. Come here, mommy. Her mother limped over in the yellow chiffon dress took the mic from her daughter and said happy birthday baby the crowd started singing happy birthday to ya happy birthday to ya I couldn't believe it the black caterpillar didn't like the shift in attention she stormed up and grabbed the mic interrupting the birthday song saying I won I get to pick who I want to go to Red Lobster with no you don't it's my birthday not yours the birthday girl said snatching back the mic the one in the yellow tried to step in between their fight but in seconds amir's pop touched her wrist and put his arm around her waist to help her walk and she followed him off to the side pops dropped down and removed her heels and was massaging her foot amir threw push it back on and let it rock since the crowd favored it The black caterpillar dropped down and crawled underneath the DJ booth and popped up beside Amir. This wasn't the kind of attack I was set up to put down. The birthday girl walked around and stood on his other side. He took the mic from her, lowered the volume on the salt and pepper joint, and turned him see. Go Brooklyn! Go Brooklyn! Go Brooklyn! He called out confidently and the crowd joined as the whole place rocked to the chant moving the attention completely off of the girls that were on him to his left and his right. He was ruling and rocking the crowd. Ain't no party like a Brooklyn party and a Brooklyn party don't stop. Amir rhymed and the crowd repeated the rhyme. He had them all caught up. Another girl rushed under the table and was pulling the black caterpillar down by her ankles. The black caterpillar tried holding on to Amir. He shook her off and threw on a cut called Ego Trippin' by Ultramagnetic MCs. The crowd got swept into the beats and rhymes, ignoring what was happening up front. A girl brawl broke out beneath the table and all the equipment was shaking. Amir's 11 and 12 year old crew flew out the wings where they had been chilling in the dark, got on opposite sides of the table and held it down steady screaming, back up from the DJ table. Some of them girls tried to stand up even though the table was above them. Amir's pops and the one in the yellow dress began tugging the girls from beneath the table, their clothes out of whack from fighting like alley cats and junkyard dogs. They each came crawling out or got dragged out and tried to straighten themselves and their clothes and hair. We gonna slow it down, Amir announced. So girls, take it easy. Us men are here for you. All the single ladies, come to the dance floor right here. He pointed. All of the single men over here, he pointed. This is for you. 
Don't be shy. I'm a dance with this troublemaker right here, he said, pointing to the black caterpillar. My pop's gonna hold the turntables down for me. His pop stepped up and nodded like a cool old dude, and the crowd gave him props like they were all familiar with him. Then Amir announced, the birthday girl is gonna dance with my man, Romeo Black, he nodded, and then pointed at me without waiting or checking for my reaction. I like it, my debarge was spinning. I'm bringing the love back, his father said, all smoothed out like he was Frankie Crocker, one of them late night radio announcers. The throwback record raised up the lust level in the young bodies. Now all teens were paired up and pressed together. Mitzi, the birthday girl, was standing alone, staring at me. Amir's pops was looking my way with a big smile on his face. Could be because the one in the yellow dress was right at his side or because he knew his son had put me on the spot and in the spotlight, the place I hated the most. I was thinking about the nine on my waist, the ring on my finger, my second wife in my heart, and the niggas in the room. I was looking at the sweet 16 walking up on me. Hey, Romeo, or should I call you black, she asked me. Happy birthday was all I said. I put one hand on her waist, but didn't let our bodies or our eyes connect. You're not from around here, she said. Nah, but you are from Brooklyn. I could tell, she said. I didn't say nothing. You go to college, she asked me. Nah, I said. You seem much calmer than some of these boys, she said. Nice to meet you. Can I make you my birthday present? all before the finale. Amir's Pops threw on Don't Look Any Further by Dennis Edwards. That song was saying something and had the girls open. He let it rock uninterrupted and grabbed the hand of the one in the yellow dress and they began dancing right in front of the DJ table. He was leaning her back and she was laying into him Then he leaned her the other way and molded her body to his lead. She is the mother of four daughters, a grown woman. I calculated the youngest actual age she could be was 30. Yet, she fit right into a sweet 16 party, not as a chaperone or a guardian, but like all the rest of the young ladies in the jam. No one saw her walk into the party but she did. I didn't see her until she was already beating the woman with the yellow dress's ass. The birthday girl flew to her mother's rescue. The black caterpillar and Amir and two more girls ran off the dance floor and tried to stop the fight. She was a vicious fighter. Ripped the yellow dress off of the birthday girl's mother and dragged her by her hair naked all the way to the light switch and flipped it on. Amir tried to stop her. She slapped him. She got away with it too because she was his mom's. Chill in my room for four more hours, Amir said to me, and he was dead serious. I had helped him lug all of his equipment and belongings back to his building and upstairs to his apartment, along with the five-man 1112 crew. He gave each of them $20. Damn, now I'm down 100, he said, muttering to himself. My mom's. 
I understand that she's emotional, but she's getting worse. She fucked up the money on my first gig. If I hadn't listened to Chris talk about getting a deposit and per diem when when we were setting up to build the wall and shit like that, I would have got jerked for the whole 350 and still had to pay my young boys. Now, out of the $175 upfront money, I only made $75 off this situation, he said. I'm going to bounce back to my spot, I told him. It was 2 in the morning, and I didn't want my wives to worry. You need to trust me on this. From 12 to 6 a.m., PBNM is downstairs sticking up anything moving. You won't even see them. They hang back in the shadows. And you ain't from around here, Amir warned. Them dudes is nasty. They'll take your steel and kill you with it. He sounded straight up. I'm not worried about Pee-wee and them, I told Amir. You not worried. I am, so do it for me, Amir added with an emotion I didn't feel coming off of him ever. So I chilled, waiting on the sun. You asked me to show you how to make the prayer, I said, reminding him of what he had said the night before I went to Asia when it was just me and him in my empty Brooklyn apartment. I remember he admitted But after a party, maybe not. What difference does it make? I asked him not to push, but to hear how he was thinking about it. I'm saying, he said, and then paused. If I'm going to get serious, I want to be serious, not sliding back and forth. I'm not 100 that I'm ready to get serious with it, he said. No pressure, I told him. Then I asked, what are you serious about? The girl in the black dress? Mimi? She's the freaky sister. She's Mitty's freaky sister, Amir confided. My mind was blown, and I stood still, putting it all together. The mother in the yellow dress purchased a red lobster coupon, dinner for two for the winner of the musical chairs game. And even though she was the mother and she brought the prize, She still participated in the game and jumped in the last chair remaining and declared herself the winner. Even though she is the black caterpillar's mother, her daughter still snatched the chair from under her and watched her crash down to the floor and twist her ankle. Didn't help her up, but sat in the chair showcasing her legs and toes. Even though the black caterpillar is the sister to Mitzi, the birthday girl, She still upstaged her and aggressively challenged her over Amir. Who were the girls who were underneath the table fighting? They weren't the other two sisters, were they? I asked, thinking and knowing it had to be impossible for all four sisters to be trying to give Amir the panties. Nah, the other two sisters are older, 17 and 18. They came to the party late with their boyfriends, so they was up under them. They all had on the same dress, different colors. You should have caught on from that. Their mom's Minerva was in the yellow. Mitzi, the birthday girl, in the light blue. Mimi in the black. Mina in the red. And Misha in the green. Now, if they were some random chicks who just happened to be wearing the same dress on the same night at the same party, that right there would have set it off, he said. It was crazy, I thought. Him thinking anyone who didn't live in his building or live the way that he and these people think is normal 
could guess at some actions and happenings that were unimaginable, at least to me. The girls under the table were two girls that I talked to from time to time, and the third one was best friends with one of them. He broke it down for me. Why not choose the one you think is the one who you could chill with? I asked him. I really wanted to know. None of them is the one, he said. Maybe I'll import me something exotic, like you did. I didn't say nothing back. I don't want anyone commenting on Akimi, my first wife, or on the second one either, but Amir never met her. And don't throw me none of your girls no more. You know I don't like that shit, I said, referring to Mitzi, the birthday girl, who he said was sweet on him. I threw you a virgin, something no one else can seem to get. I know you would like that, he said, but he was wrong. Don't worry, brother, Amir said. I'ma get my weight up. I'll need three more years. When I'm 18, I'ma do the prayers, same as you. I'ma have a badass wife like you do. I'ma have my business popping so I could be calm and cool like you. You so calm, so cool. You never even borrowed a dollar from me. Plus, I'ma have clout and reputation so I could walk in and out on the team anytime I feel like it and still play in the playoffs. You still heated about that, huh? I asked him, but it was really a statement. I'm more heated that you don't trust me enough to even fill me in on how you got put back on, he said. I made an appointment with the black team coach, Vega. Then bam, the owner, Ricky Santiago, showed up instead of the coach. He wanted me to play. I wanted to play, so I agreed, I said. That easy? The hustler. Ricky Santiago showed up for self in person. I'm sure there was more to it. You secretive and stingy with your stories, he complained. What was he pushing? That black Ferrari 288 GTO you said he had the last time you saw him a couple of months ago? Nah, a Maserati Royale, I said calmly. Damn, a Maserati what? Just a Maserati is crazy enough. A Maserati Royale? I never even heard of that. That's twice I missed out on seeing something mean like that. Did he let you ride in it? He let me drive it, I said. I'm telling you that because I trust you enough to know you won't repeat it. That's something no one would believe if I told him. That's something a cat would have to see for himself, Amir said. You think he lets any of the other players on your black team ride in his whip like that? And push it too? Nope. He got some kind of connection with you. You linked up with a major player. You think it's about basketball? He might want you on his real team, for real, for real. Amir said, and we both seemed paused to consider it. Did he mention anything besides the junior basketball league? Amir asked curiously. He told me that he doesn't believe that there is any such thing as a bad man. I told Amir truthfully about the conversation I had had with Ricky Santiago. Probably. I mentioned that one sentence to Amir and left out a hundred others because of how it had stood out in my mind. I began to recall it. Clearly. Santiago and I had been back in the parking garage below the upscale, high-rise condominiums where he had stopped immediately after he first picked me up. It was nighttime. He had asked me to drive home from Edgewater, New Jersey. I did, 
but once I was about to round the bend and head into the Lincoln Tunnel, he told me to pull over. I did. He took over the driver's seat and I was back in passenger position. When we reached the Manhattan condos, he asked me to come up with him. For what, I asked. I have someone who wants to meet you, he said. Who? A lady who I bragged so much to about that shot you made that she wants to meet you in person. Santiago said comfortably, but I was uncomfortable. Is she the only one upstairs where you're headed, I asked him. Two, he said. There are two women upstairs who want to meet you. And that's it. So I agreed and rode up on the elevator with him. He pulled out a small key with an unusual shape and placed it in an unusual shaped slot on the elevator control panel. You seem not to trust no one, Santiago said solemnly. Then he asked me, do you think you're the only trustworthy man and everyone else is below you? Why would you, why would I think that, I responded. Do you think there's quote unquote good money and quote unquote bad money, Santiago asked, ignoring my questioning of him. I understood. He was talking real calm, but seemed tight all of a sudden because I didn't take the $25,000 cash from him that he wanted me to take. Instead, I made the vending machine business deal with him. Maybe he's feeling fucked up about it after we shook on it, I thought. All money is good money, and there is no such thing as a bad man, so don't look down on the next man, he said oddly. I was thinking that he was the one with the elite exotic vehicle collection. Why was he now asking me not to look down on him? Or maybe he was tight because I thought his man Alistair is an ass and had punched him in the face. Maybe he thought that I looked down on Alistair. If so, then he was right. Then he said again, there's no such thing as bad men. There are only bad situations and you, son will never know if you yourself are a bad man or if you would do the same things as a bad man until you get caught up in a bad situation. He paused. The elevator opened and we were standing in an impressive living room in the sky. The beauty of it was in its spaciousness and the placement of each of the few pieces of imported furniture. There was no do-it-yourself, build-it, borrow-it, or rent-it type pieces in there. And the huge, wide windows made the sky, moon, and stars seem like part of the penthouse. The design of the marble floors was only matched by the design of the Persian rug that was perfectly placed in one area of the room. There were Tiffany lamps and tropical flowers, porcelain vases and expensive abstract paintings. Even the media area could only be described as cinema and not television. An open-air professional kitchen, two bedrooms, and a greenhouse. I was sure that this was a female place, paid for by man-made money. The type of place that a man would only provide and maintain for someone close to his heart. Perhaps his mother, I thought. This way, Santiago said, walking quietly in his leather Gucci driving shoes. He slid the heavy glass doors open and shut them as soon as we were both standing outside. On the terrace was a marble card table and four matching marble stools. On the table was a chessboard made of beautiful 24 karat gold with pure gold chess pieces. 
The king and queen pieces were detailed with genuine diamonds, and around the perimeter of the board were inlaid tiny princess cuts. It was an exquisite board, made with fucking passion and precision. It had to be conceived and designed by someone who loved the game, felt they'd mastered the game, and for whom the game had a deeper meaning than it carried for most. I got drawn to it. Do you know the game? Santiago asked me. Somewhat, I replied. Think you can beat me? He asked casually. I think I can, but since you own that board, I think I'd have to let you win, he said. I said. We laughed. Then one day we'll play in a broke down little spot on a cheap cardboard board with plastic pieces. On that day, put all of your effort into it. So when I beat you, you won't front like you let me win, he said smoothly. <laughs> I will do that. I put my word on it. Facing the money-making Manhattan nightlights and its unrivaled urban skyline, Santiago said suddenly, and if you are a good man in a bad situation who does something bad, you're still a good man. Just fighting for your own survival like all real men have to do. So, what do you think about what Santiago was saying, Amir asked me. I think if I don't take some sleep, I won't be able to figure nothing out, I told him, and put my head to rest on my knees in the sitting position on the floor in my best friend, Amir Nickerson's room. As I drifted off, I thought about how there was only silence coming from Amir's parents' bedroom. His mother had got what she wanted, I figured, her husband, in her bed, every night. I thought of my wives. Then my mind drifted back to the two women Santiago had introduced me to in that plush penthouse. I considered what message he was relaying to me by introducing me to them at all. One thing I sensed and felt that I knew for sure was that the introduction and the manner in which he was dealing with me that day and night, like Amir suggested, went beyond a teen's basketball league. With blue eyes and blonde hair elegantly wrapped into a flawless bun, the white-skinned woman in that expensive condo did not speak a word yet welcomed me warmly and was still very expressive. She approached with her eyes first and then walked right over, reached out and touched my face with both of her palms and opened both of my palms then looked inside. She held my hands until the black-skinned woman, same complexion as myself, approached and took my hands from her. Dark brown eyes. Dark brown was the lightest color on her. Her black hair was natural, and each strand was twisted instead of cornrowed into a royal sculpture at the nape of her neck. She was thick, but not fat. Her clothing was fine fabric, her heels expensive and sturdy, not stylish. Unlike the white woman, whose hands were cold yet soft in a way that revealed she had never done a day's work, the African woman's hands were warm and worn like a worker's. Her heavy hands felt like the hands of a woman who had lived, really lived, and loved deeply. 
and strongly and continuously every second of her life. They were the hands of a mother, perhaps a cook and seamstress as well. Her voice was unusual and unexpected, high-pitched. Son cru as peu, il est fidèle, il porte la cour, il soirée votre vie en jour, she said, speaking in what I knew was French, even though I do not speak any French. I tried to press her French words into my memory and store them long enough so I could speak them to my second wife and she would tell me their meaning. She is the only one whom I know who speaks the French language. On the route back to Brooklyn, in his speeding Porsche, which he hopped into after parking the Maserati at the private penthouse garage and protecting it with the car cover that concealed the beauty nicely, Santiago said to me, out of minutes of silence, she has no tongue, the white one. Her husband cut it off. A warning to me, maybe, I thought about the consequences of talking too much or talking too much about him and his business in particular. But it was a morning I didn't need or fear. On my own, I am mindful. Or maybe Santiago was sharing a personal secret or making a confession or maybe by introducing me to the women, he was just trying to show me another aspect of himself for some reason. I was certain that these women were not women he was involved with intimately. They were both at least 20 years over his age. It crossed my mind that the black-skinned one might be his mother. If so, his father would have to be a white man, I thought. Santiago's skin color was a degree away from white, not even close to tan without a long trip to a tropical island or even the desert where the sun scorched and roasted anything and anyone who has a drop of melanin. I thought so more. Maybe the white woman was his mother and his father was a black man. Is there an African man who would cut off his wife's tongue? I thought to myself. Each wife's tongue is so soothing and precious to a man. In my experience, the mouth itself an opening so intimate, second only to the opening buried between her thighs. Amir was asleep now and laid out on his bed in his party clothes, his red suede pumas still on his feet. I was still seated on the floor, the wall behind my mattress. I gave up the fight between my mind and my body and just let go. Something different, Chris said. He was talking about his riding instructor, Lila a slim blonde of maybe 19 years young who had just mounted the horse where he was already seated. Now she sat closely behind him. There are places in New York that the everyday New Yorker never even knew existed, he said, referring to the riding course that was hidden inside Van Cortland Park in Inwood at the northern tip of Manhattan. Lila reached her arms below his arms and grabbed the reins. She began touching his hands until she had them positioned how she wanted him to hold them. Then she placed the reins under his control. Yes, now you are holding them the right way. Your thumbs up, she said. They were both seated in the saddle on top of a beautiful oil black female horse named Medusa with sculptured legs and a black mane of hair as long and soft and straight as the flowing human hair that lay on my first wife's back. Medusa 
like the one from Greek mythology who, when you look at her, turns men into stones, Chris asked her, flossing his school smarts. It depends how you look at it, Lila explained. We call her Medusa because of her paralyzing beauty. When anyone looks at her, they come to a complete standstill, almost as if they are under her spell. Her words seem to place Chris under a spell. First, let's adjust your posture, she said to Chris. Posture, she said to Chris. Then she turned to me, seated solo on my speckled, dirty, white horse, whose skin pattern was more cow-like than anything else, and completely unimpressive. Are you watching? She asked me. I smiled at Chris. Yeah, I'm watching, I answered her calmly. Balance out your weight so that you're not leaning more to the left or to the right, she said, touching Chris's sides with her fingertips. Stay centered in the saddle. She pressed her body against his back. Don't lean forward, she said, feeling, she said, after, feeling his body's reaction to her body touching his. Now, a careful review of what we've learned so far. You will have to remember it all. You will have to remember it all for the times when you are riding alone. Approach her slowly and gently, she said, referring to the horse. She senses your temperament. Only match yourself up with a horse that has similar energy to your own. If she becomes agitated, she's not the one for you. If she is calm and welcoming, sense that and touch her, petting her gently. Stand in front of her, never behind. Lila reviewed her previous instructions. And always mount her from her left side, Chris added. And hold the reins firmly, but not tight, keeping your hands in the right position, Chris demonstrated after summarizing. Good, Lila praised him. Now, can we ride, Chris asked. Patience, she said softly. You are learning her slowly. Remember, she is responding to your posture, your movements, no matter how slight or severe. Let's line up your body, she said, touching Chris's ear. Your ears should be aligned with your shoulders. She moved her hands to his shoulders as he continued to carefully hold the reins. Your shoulders should be aligned with your hips, she said, now holding his hips from each side. And your hips should be aligned with your heels. She tapped the back of his beef and broccoli tims. Don't push your feet too deeply into the stirrups, she advised him. Balance on the balls of your feet, got it? Do you think you can handle her alone? He, she asked Chris. I can, he said thoughtfully. Thoughtfully, But it would be better if you ride with me for today since it's my first lesson. I was cracking up on the inside. She kicked the horse. She had told him to kick her, but Chris replied, I don't want to hurt her. You're not hurting her. You're guiding her so she will know what you want her to do, Lila said, and they were off. Medusa, walking like she wanted to evoke an emotion, Lila, both hands around Chris's waist. My horse rolled beside theirs. Don't be too stiff. Move your hips with the rhythm of her body so she can move freely underneath your weight, Lila said. Relax. She feels what you feel. If you're tense, she will panic and react. That's not good for you or for her. Now, if you want her to trot, squeeze her with both legs and do this with the reins, she gestured, and she will trot for you. 
both of our walking horses merged into trotting. The sound of the hoofs in the soil, the bounce of the beast, the trees seeming to revolve around me, and the motion and speed all moved me. The sun beaming down on my back massaged me as I was riding and imagining my second wife riding. She sparked me to do this, although she had no idea that she did, or of what I was doing at the moment or where I was doing it. I knew Chiasa had mastered horseback riding, and I wanted to make it possible for her to continue with it since she loved it. I didn't want her missing her horse or her country too much. I wanted her to want to be with me, to have whatever she wanted or was accustomed to, and to feel fully content. To do that, to do that though, I had to catch up with her first, become fully capable in her hobby. When I take her riding, I'm going to ride with her, like I've been doing it all my life, <laughs> like I'm an expert, like I am leading her. As a man, I had to do it just like that. Have you ever rode horseback? I'm sure you have, Chiasa had asked and said to me one late night as we lay between the sheets. I ride, I responded. Really? She said, super excited. A camel, I said. A camel, she exclaimed and then laughed. Seriously, you know I'm from the desert. We raise, ride, race, and rely on camels, I told her. (laughs) Oh, I never even considered that. Maybe you'll teach me how to ride a camel? Take me to the desert where you're from, she said softly. She wanted to go everywhere I've gone and be every place I've been and do or at least see everything I've done and seen. I was born in Khartoum. That's the city. My father has a second house in the countryside. Then we spent most summers in the south with my grandfather. Your grandfather. I want to meet him, she said excited. Let's write him a letter and plan a trip there. She was always about action, even when she was naked on her back, being caressed, and her breathing was giving away her complete pleasure. He doesn't have an address, I told her. Everybody has an address, she said laughing. Nah, I said rubbing the inside of her thighs. Yes, they do, she said exhaling. "Uh Uh-uh. To find him, you'd have to travel through the desert and then the jungle until you reach his village. There's no post office and no mailbox, I told her truthfully. No mailbox, she said softly. How do they get mail, she asked. They don't want mail. Everybody they know and love is already in the village. No, not you and your father. Your grandfather must love both of you. He does, but he is the elder, so we, have to go to him. My grandfather would say that if my father and I are not in the village where he is and where he has always been, we are in the wrong place. So fucking cool, she said. The wrong place, huh? Well then, we'll go to him after you make me feel good. Please draw a map, she kissed me. A map from your house in Khartoum to your grandfather's village, she said sweetly. Only if life was as simple as it is for her, I thought. No more words, just heated, gentle kisses and deep, slow stroking and a lot of love and breathing. That's how I ended up taking horseback lessons to keep up with my incredibly swift and curious second wife. There has to be more than one riding coach, Chris said to Lila. Our first lesson had ended and we were all three standing in the stables where we had returned Medusa and my horse named 
Easy does it. Of course, there are 12 instructors to be exact. It all depends on your scheduling request. Michelle was supposed to teach your friend, but he called in sick at the last moment, unfortunately, Lila said. He? Chris and I both said at the same time. Yes, our apology, she said to me, and Michelle is a Frenchman. In their country, Michelle can be the name of a woman or a man. They're just spelled differently, she explained. He is a student here in the U.S., and in any case, he's a great instructor, even better than myself. My friend here, Chris began saying as I listened closely to how he was about to set this up, I knew he was attracted to Lila and had already decided that he did not want her body pressed up against my back or her fingers locked around my waist, even though she was an instructor and must do it all the time. My friend here will reschedule his lesson with Michelle, Chris said. Then he betrayed me with a sucker punch. My friend here prefers a male instructor, he said. I was straight-faced but laughing hard on the inside. So, you plan on becoming a serious equestrian? Lila asked me. I'm serious, I confirmed. And I want to sign up for the 12 lesson package. Pay up front, get the 30% discount on today's introductory lesson for free. I see. You know your stuff, Lila laughed. Before I could add anything to it, Chris jumped in. I'm serious too. I want the same package, same time slot as today, and Lila as my instructor, he said, giving me a stern look. I didn't fight the challenge. It was unnecessary. I knew he was jockeying for the girl. I also knew Lila was already his. I could hear her body talking to him. I knew she didn't have to get in the saddle with him to teach him to ride, same as she didn't have to get in to show me. And me, I was good, really good, in love with my women and all of my desires fulfilled in every way. 12 lessons at $50 each, that's 600, Chris said. 30% of $600, that's a $180 discount. And today's lesson is free, that's $420 for each of us. Chris looked shocked at his own calculation of the cost and at the sound of his own voice saying the numbers aloud. I peeled off eight $100 bills and two twenties and paid for both of us. Good thing the payment went into the cashier's hand and not Lila's, cause her man Chris was at the front counter shrinking under the weight of the debt and his swift agreement without cost consideration. Now the numbers were dancing in his head, but he had also gotten Lila's phone number. I hope that smoothed it out for him. I think I fucked up, Chris said. We were on the same train, headed to his house at his request, even though I had mad shit to do at my house. Now, I owe you $420. My father's gonna kill me, he said, talking to himself, really. Don't sweat it, man, I told him. That's easy for you to say. Thanks for coming back with me. It's a tactic. Your presence will cut the scolding I get from my father in half. He doesn't like to beat me down in front of a house guest. He left off a he left he let off a nervous laugh. You got six hundred more dollars coming your way as soon as we complete the wall, I reminded him. Man, you don't know the half, Chris said. My father oversees the management of my life. He says my money is his money, even if I went out and worked and earned it. How's that? I asked. My father will pull out a spreadsheet of all of the money he spent on me since birth, Chris began explaining, and we both had to laugh.
wait right here, Chris said. We had just walked through the doors that led into his Brooklyn brownstone. You can sit down, you know, on the couch, his little sister said to me after I had been standing for 10 minutes. I didn't sit, though. Wasn't comfortable taking up an offer from a young girl and getting comfortable in another man's house without first greeting Chris's father. Okay, well, stand up if you want to, she said, shrugging her shoulders and reminding me of Naja. Would you like a glass of water? No, thank you. I'm good for now, I said to her. That's what you think. Daddy talks for a long time, and Chris owes you money, so Daddy will be talking for even longer than before, she warned. Her mother came through the front door and paused when she saw me. Oh, hi, how are you, she asked me. Hello, Mrs. Brockman, I'm fine. Thanks for asking, I said. Let me help you with that bag. I reached for the bag of books she carried that looked like it felt heavy. No, I'm going to set them down right here. Taylor, why haven't you offered our guest something to drink, she asked her daughter. She did offer me, I said swiftly. Oh, good. So, Chris owes you some money, I understand? His mother asked, although she obviously already knew. I heard Reverend Broadman approaching. Son, how are you? He asked me. My natural smile came out. I'm good, Reverend Broadman, I said solidly. So, what are you doing in my house talking to my wife? He asked me with a stern stance and tone. I was stuck. Then he smiled and said, take it easy, fella. I hear my son owes you some money. His smile evaporated. Step into my office. He pointed for me to walk forward. I followed the direction of his finger. He had a pipe and a pipe tray. Seemed all men smoked something. His office was neat, his files in perfect piles. He wrote with a Parker pen, but also had a fountain pen and inkwell. I hadn't seen that in a long time. On his coat stand, there were no coats, but there was one of the religious robes that I had seen him wear once before when Amir and I visited his church. He had a hat stand with all types of hat choices. Most importantly, I figured, at least to him and his followers, he had a degree from Morehouse College and one also from New York Theological Seminary. Since you are the man with the ideas, I want to talk to you one-on-one. I sent my son to his room. He's your admirer. I'm his father. I support him, yet he seems to follow your ideas. Reverend Broadman said, taking his seat in his black leather spinning chair with high back. Chris speaks highly of you every time I see him, I said solemnly. He teaches us the things that you teach him. The Reverend leaned back and stared at me sternly. My father is overseas. I listen to what you say to Chris, almost the same as if my father was saying it, I said sincerely. I felt this man was about to hit me with a bunch of questions, so... I wanted to impact the tone of this conversation. I wanted to say up front that I know Chris has his own mind and thoughts, even though we three are tight and influence one another in certain ways. I wanted to be cooperative with Mr. Broadman and his style of doing and saying things, but I have my own ways and certain things I would and wouldn't say. Like what? What have I taught Chris that you have listened to same as if your own father was saying it? He asked, his two eyebrows merging into one. Your lesson about paying taxes, 
collecting receipts and keeping good records. I listened to that and put it into practice in my own business dealings, I said. Is that right? What kind of business dealing does a teenager, the same age as my son, have, he asked, as though he might think I was either exaggerating and doing nothing at all or doing something shady. I'm in the vending business. My mother and I also have a clothing design and tailoring company. If I had known I would be visiting your house today, I would have brought some complimentary samples. What kind of vending business, he asked suspiciously. I sell vending machines to business owners who want to expand their stream of revenue. I also own a machine and collect revenue from it as well, I said. Where do you get these machines from, he asked, and he seemed interested, curious, and successfully distracted from whatever type of sermon he had planned on giving me. Of course, from a vending distributor, I buy wholesale and sell retail, I said. And where do you store these heavy machines, he asked. I don't have to store them. The distributor stores them at their warehouse. I have a pamphlet that displays the vending machines and product options. I show it to a business owner or potential customer. Once you make your choice and pay a deposit, I have the machine shipped directly to the location where you want it. What if it breaks, he asked, trying to cover all of the angles. My machines are all brand new. Come with a warranty and a repair kit and instruction manual. Anyone can follow the instructions. It's user-friendly machinery. And what's the cut on the profits? The cut, I repeated, once you buy it, it's yours. You keep 100% of the profit. In certain cases where I own the machine and you own the establishment, you can give me a space in your place and we can agree to what percentage we want to share on profits or the establishment can rent me the space at a small flat fee. I pay the rental fee and keep all of the profits. And when the machine is sold out, Who's going to restock it, he asked. I smiled. If you have purchased it, you restock it, I said. He leaned forward. Where are you getting these machines from, he asked me, sounding more like an investigator than a potential customer. Which businessman reveals the details of his supplier, I asked him swiftly. He flashed a rare smile. You said you have paperwork for these machines, son. Am I correct? He asked. Yes, sir. Then I can just look at the paperwork and and it should state clearly where the machine is coming from and how I go about securing my warranty, he asked, like he had triumphantly finally cornered me into confessing some illegitimate or illegal affair. Yes, but if you are looking at the paperwork and at your warranty, it would mean that you had already purchased and ordered the machine for me. You would be my customer. So... Of course, at that point, I would share all of my information with you, I said. How much per unit, he asked me. Depends on what you're ordering after reviewing the photos of the machinery. It also depends on which size and type of machine you chose and what it dispenses. Could be soda, waters, chips, books, candies, hygiene products, toys, or even shoes. Good idea, son, he said, turning suddenly positive. You're not the first one to have this idea, though. I looked into it before. After some research, it seemed like a real ripoff. 
They wanted to charge me big money up front to buy the machine. Then I would place the machine in my church or business establishment. Then they said for me not to touch the machine. Their company had men who restock, men who repair, etc. Then they offered me 10% of the profit. I told those con artists to stay clear of me before I report them to the Better Business Bureau. How do I pay for something, put it in my place of business, can't touch it, and they come into my place and take all of the money out of the machine and give me a dog share? Was it an American vending company, I asked? Of course. I buy American. I drive American cars. I support American workers. I am an American. Well, Reverend Broadman, I'll keep it 100 with you. My machines are from overseas. My sales are clean sales. Once money changes hands, it's yours. If you see me on your property after I've sold you a machine, I'm trespassing, I said. This way, we give you total control, 100% profit, which is what you paid for. How did you come up with this idea, young man? He asked, reminding me that he and I are not peers and that I am only a teenager. I got the idea while traveling in Asia. I kept it brief. Oh, yes, son. Chris told me that you were married to an Asian girl. I thought he was joking, his old man. Typically, a fella from your generation calls his girlfriend his wife, he said, chuckling. I am married, but I don't discuss my wives the way I discuss my business, I said. He looked at me, his elbows on his desktop now, and his fingers interlocked in front of his face. No disrespect, Reverend Broadman. I said, because it felt like I needed to say it just to keep things respectful and even. He stood up and left. Returning with Chris close behind him, he cleared the way for his son to repay me. Chris counted it out. All of his bills were twenties and fifties. Thanks, man, I said, with the reverend hovering over him and me. I offered, would you like a receipt? Son, the reverend said. Chris, Chris answered him, yes. Not you, the reverend scolded his son. You're a debtor. Your friend is an earner, an asset. Your friend understands that his life is a corporation and he is making the best use of his time on earth. Then he turned towards me. I don't know what you two are going to make out of horseback riding. When Chris first mentioned it, I thought it was a fine idea because he said one free lesson. I agreed to it. After listening to you speak, son, he said to me, I can see you have a lot of unique ideas, the art of influence, and great salesman skills. You fit right into the Baptist tradition. Come by tomorrow with your vending folder. You might have made a new customer out of me, but I'll believe it when I see it. That's the difference between business and faith, he chuckled. Outside on the step, in front of Chris's brownstone, I told Chris, I gotta get moving. About Lila, he said, I'm good. I'm married. I'm not cock-blocking, I said, putting my disclaimer on it. I know I wasn't speaking on that, Chris said, and he seemed unusually serious. She's a white girl. What do you think about that? Women are women, I said, and I meant it. My mother would kill me, he said. Why? I asked, and I didn't know the answer. Our family is on display. Everything the Reverend's children do is a reflection on Christianity. That's how we're raised, he said. Does Christianity say that you can't marry a white girl? Nah, he broke his solemn mood and laughed. Jesus doesn't say so, but my mother says so. And up until now, I haven't had any type of beef with my moms. We good. 
Chris said, folding his arms in front of himself. Do you plan to marry Lila? I asked him. No, but I'd like to have the option to marry whichever girl I choose, he said. What does your father say, I asked. He would offer me a negotiation and some type of compromise. What kind of compromise, I asked. He would say I could date Lila, but not marry her. How you gonna do that, I asked. You think you could be riding around with that young lady and not go in her? Yeah, I know. That horseback riding is some real sexual shit, isn't it? She was driving me crazy on that horse, he laughed, reflecting. I know. I watched you flip on me, your friend of seven years after seeing her for seven minutes, I joked him. Nah, I just know how you be hemming everything up in every situation you get into. I'm not as fast as you, so I had to make it clear that I had dibs on that. He laughed again, but his laughter shifted back into thought. I could use a condom, he said suddenly, long as I don't get her pregnant, which would kill my mom's, I'm good. So, with Christians, you can go into the women without marriage, I asked. You're not supposed to, but everybody does. It's not the fucking that upsets the church. It's the getting girls pregnant. That's a huge mistake. A total fuck up, he said. And his words silenced me. As a Muslim, I couldn't understand him right then. I couldn't understand his faith. I couldn't understand parents that say yes to fucking and no to young marriage or marriage based on race or the worst, parents who say yes to fucking and no to babies. New life. I know. You think it's crazy, right? He asked. Reading my mind or facial expression or something, I didn't answer him right away. I wanted to say true words that he could think about and consider and even do. I was pushing around the street version of my explanation and the faith version of my explanation. I think men be thinking that taking a woman as a wife is taking a loss. But if a good man links with a good woman and they marry, he will see, feel, and be able to count up the benefits. For example, your father seemed surprised that a young man could build a business. I don't have to chase pussy because I have a wife. Imagine how much time and aggravation that cuts out of my schedule. It leaves me with plenty of time to build my business. Yeah, but if you marry her, you're stuck with her. What if you change your mind or just get tired of her? If you look at your wife as just pussy, then you went about it in a wrong way, I told him. If you choose a good woman and you genuinely like her, like her thoughts and her jokes and her beliefs and her conversation and her expressions and her talents and feelings, you develop a real love for her. You'll respect her. And the scary thing is, once you have her, you need her. Then the love grows. I don't know, Chris said. My mind tends to convert everything into math. Guess I got that from my father. If I get married at 15, by the time I'm 25, I'll have been married for a whole decade. I might be a whole different dude by the time I hit 25. Then I might look at my wife as an obstacle that I need to move out of my way. If you get married, nine months later you'll become a father, I said, and paused and looked him in the eye. So yeah, you will be a whole different dude. You'll be one of those responsible people who your father talks about. On the other hand, you'll be so amazed at how loving your wife brought forth your son and how your son looks like you and becomes your new challenge. That's where you get to prove what kind of man you are by how you raise your son. Just think, 
you'll be in your father's position. Your son will be in the position that you are accustomed to right now. That's deep, Chris said, thinking. I can't imagine being in my father's position. That's crazy. He controls everything. My mom, our house, my sister and brother, our family business, our place of worship, my studies, my money, everything down to the last detail. And he will continue to control it. For as long as you delay your manhood, I said. That's a fucked up comment. What do you mean? What do you mean delay my manhood? I'm a man, Chris said forcefully. It doesn't matter what you say. It only matters what you do when it comes to manhood. As long as you are a dependent, you will be considered a boy without options. You will be ruled and loved, but not respected. Our parents respect us when we begin to put into action all of the lessons they took the time to teach us and when what we put into action brings about real results i said whoa hold up i need to write that down chris said shifting the mood into playful something he definitely had a talent to do even when me and amir get into our disagreements i didn't plan to get married i told chris as soon as he thought as soon as the thought dropped into my mind i was about training my body for war fighting and working and building my mother's business but then a diamond dropped down from the sky right at my feet as a man and for any man if you saw a diamond in the soil or on the curb or at your feet could you just leave it alone walk away and forget about it nah instinctively you are going to pick it up look around and see if anyone else saw you pick it up or if it was someone else's diamond. Soon as you confirm that no one else saw and that there was no previous owner and that the diamond is just something extremely valuable and natural that the maker made and that it was your diamond delivered by destiny, you're gonna pocket it, keep it, cherish it, protect it, love it. Nice metaphor, Chris said. But what if five years down the line you find a second or third diamond? He seemed to be preoccupied with the idea that one woman could not satisfy a man. As a Christian, that's all you get is one diamond. A Muslim man can have up to four without sin, I said, feeling good about Islam and the way it flows smoothly with the natural science of man. Chris laughed. Damn, man, that's harsh. That might be the reason Christian men are all afraid to marry. Just one wife for life. Do you plan to have four wives at one time? He asked me. I already told you. I didn't plan to have the first one. But the diamond was right there at my feet. I don't plan on leaving any diamonds behind that Allah allows me. Word up, Chris said. Thanks, brother. That's a whole lot to think about. See you in the morning. At the wall, I bounced.